Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My guest this week is the GB News political correspondent, Tom Harwood. Tom, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Uh, thanks. And congratulations on the launch of GB News. I think it's fair to say that the channel has received some criticisms for a number of things, such as dark sets, few sound issues, and even some questions over uh, a sense of balance from some of the hosts. How does GB News respond to those critiques and what changes are being made editorially? You know, you're so right to pick up on the changes that are being made because one of the brilliant things about being a startup, about being relatively small in terms of compared to the other large national broadcasters, we're able to listen to feedback from the people that watch the channel and change things quickly. So actually there's a full set redesign coming along and there's also uh, a bit of a show uh, rejigging as well. So there's uh, lots of stuff changing in that. We're introducing news bulletins as well, which is something that uh, people really asked for. So when it comes to uh, feedback from the people that watch us, we really, really do take it on board. And I mean, we're only a few weeks old. Uh, I think we said at the start of this process that we're going to look quite different the first six months in compared to the first six minutes in. And I think that would be certainly the case. And you mentioned there about the, the fact that this is a startup and something that I've found particularly interesting about the idea of GB News is having these, you've got new journalists just starting their careers, working hand in glove with some real veteran broadcasters like Andrew Neal, Simon McCoy, Alistair Stewart, and especially in those first few weeks of just getting the channel off the ground, how, how have you found the atmosphere in the newsroom? How have you found working from the, these real giants of news broadcasting? I would imagine that uh, everyone learns a lot from each other. Oh, absolutely. Both inside and outside the newsroom. Actually, the first time that I met Simon McCoy was over a pint just outside the studio and we sort of all met up on a social occasion. And actually, sometimes the best time to, to you know, learn from some of the, the old, old hands at this, not that I think they'd appreciate me calling them old hands, <laughs> um, but some of, some of the real veterans in this industry and so the people that have uh, achieved so much and, and reached such heights in their careers is the best time to talk about that sort of stuff is sometimes socially and, and you you learn so much just through a normal conversation so yeah no it's a real privilege to be working with such a diverse team i mean diverse in age and gender and just about everything we, we've got a real cross-section of society here and i think that makes the editorial all that much stronger and there are some who would raise concerns over the the diversity of the show and the channel. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about the, the campaign group Stop Funding Hate, who decided to launch a, a, a boycott almost of any large company that put their adverts on, on GB News over fears of it being this new right-wing Fox News-esque new channel. 
But given that GB News hadn't aired even a second of coverage before this campaign was announced, how seriously as a channel did you take their threats? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the point. It's sort of pre-cancellation, isn't it? This this idea that before they saw a single second of what was going to be broadcast, they tried to uh, shut it down. It's, it's sort of a, a campaign against any sort of media plurality. But, but this organisation, uh, which I, I think is basically just a Twitter account and some very, very angry people, have been trying to shut down a lot of newspapers in this country, have been trying to go after uh, many actually mainstream publications so I, I really don't think that they speak for that many people across the country and um, and really when brands are looking uh, at what their advertising strategy should be it's a good idea to copy what the co-op has done I mean the co-op went through a similar sort of uh, uh, tricky situation a couple of years ago when they uh, would they uh, people demanded they take ads off the spectator magazine and, and they went through a sort of uh, a big row online and actually ended up with an editorial policy whereby uh, the, the, the co-op doesn't try and interfere with the editorial of the places it chooses to advertise. And I think that if we reach a point as, as a society where sort of big brands decide to have this sort of editorial policy as a whole, then these very insular campaign groups will have less of an impact. Absolutely. And it, it appears that uh, Stop Funding 8 haven't been too successful in their campaigns because uh, only on Wednesday we saw that uh, GB News posted its first month's ratings. And it's, it's very interesting reading to look at the Press Gazette's report on this. And I was particularly interested to see that over a third of viewers are under the age of 35. Within With some slots, the rates of younger viewers actually surpasses the BBC and Sky. So what do you think it is about GB News which captures so many younger viewers? Yeah, we were all really interested to see these numbers come back. And, and you're right to notice that some slots uh, we're ahead of Sky and the BBC. I, I think it's fair to say some slots we're really, really not. Um, and there's and there's quite a difference in terms of viewership throughout the day, at least through linear TV. There's a whole another story that's happening on YouTube and on our app um, and through and through our website where people are streaming stuff digitally. That's a huge, huge market for us. We've had millions and millions of views on our social media platforms, which, which I think is something that we do um, that attracts potentially younger people. I think we're the only uh, news organisation of our kind that has a TikTok account, for example, and we put news across that way as well. Uh, maybe it's something to do with the avenues that we're using, but maybe also it's to do with an idea that um, a, a young generation is, is after something new, after something fresh, after something potentially less stale. Uh, and, and that's a sort of exciting journey for people to go on. And I think that some of our content is really reaching out to that. In the Press Gazette's report, something that really stuck out for me was something the GB News head of digital, Becca Hudson said. And she said that GB News is, and I quote, a digital media business that has a TV channel attached. Now that's a very different way of broadcasting the news. And do you think this more online oriented coverage of the news is a model that may inspire other broadcasters and they may want to emulate, especially given the data that was just released showing you know, millions of online impressions. And those impressions are something that linear TV doesn't always provide and get. 
Yeah, no, I mean, if they don't choose to do it now, I think they'll be forced to do it uh, down the line because we know that the way that people consume news is changing. People don't always sit down in front of a TV for hours and end these days. They might want to get up and do some cooking and take their tablet with them or their phone. Uh, you've got the phenomenon of double screening, people scrolling through Twitter and interacting with live TV and the content in that way. And we like to bring in what viewers have written into us in, in most shows, especially during the daytime. I think that ultimately the way that people consume media in this country is, is changing and the way that we watch TV in the next 10 years will be very different to how it was in the last 10 years. So sort of future-proofing ourselves for that, being very adaptable to whatever changes happen, seeing ourselves primarily as this digital operation rather than uh, we're our TV station and everything else is peripheral, uh, really sets us in good stead for the inevitable changes that are going to come in the market in the years to come. I'd like to ask you about uh, a report you gave for GB News on Monday. I think you know which I'm talking about. It was for Nigel Farage's new show. It was the first episode of that, and it seems to be very well received. And you were reporting from Whitehall about the anti-lockdown protests, and your report had to be cut short due to some protesters shouting obscenities at you because you are in the media. Now, the, the anti-lockdown protests, they haven't received as much coverage, and that's something that, that many were trying to urge GB News to pursue and when it first launched and try and give them more coverage because they were claiming they were the unheard voices. But do you think that throughout the pandemic, those with, let's say, more questionable opinions have been overshadowing the real reason for these anti-lockdown protests that have been going on right the way through the pandemic, which is simply for those people wanting a return to normality and to not have the economy and their businesses simply on their knees through the various lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to give everyone a voice. And at, at GB News, we, we try and recognise that there's uh, sometimes more than two sides to every story, let alone one side. And uh, I think that it's important to have healthy national debate on every single uh, option. And, and, and we shouldn't just sort of take, uh, just because, for example, the leadership of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party agree on an issue, that doesn't mean that that's a settled issue or that there's no room um, to discuss it. Now, I don't agree with um, what the sort of anti-vax protesters were saying at all, but I think that um, actually some of that, some of the stuff going on there was newsworthy. It was newsworthy that number 10 was effectively in lockdown, actually, because no one was allowed in or out the gate. I had to report from outside the gates rather than on the street of, of Downing Street because they were, they had completely sealed um, the, the, the gates as a result of potential violence from the protest outside. Now, if coverage was given to uh, the Black Lives Matter protest that had um, that had similar security concerns around it, I don't see why uh, that shouldn't have happened with the protest that we saw on Monday. I do think it was a curious time to do an anti-lockdown protest the day that lockdown was lifted, um, but but maybe um, maybe they, they had other motivations as well. Uh, but no, it was an interesting report, and I think we're going to try and do more um, sort of in-the-thick-of-it style reports, really getting to the heart of an issue. Uh, yes, of course, sitting in our studio, our studio that's improving week by week, but also cutting across to our network of journalists around the country. We've got uh, regional journalists in every region of the United Kingdom 
and they'll be able to sort of you know go live from wherever there's something interesting happening and i think that that's a, a real value added to the people that want to watch us and of course one, one of the others in in the thick of it reports as you said just then is uh, quite quite early on in gb news lifespan and that was of course the very dramatic resignation of matt hancock you were there on whitehall for that and when there is such a huge resignation like that from a probably the, one of, if not the most important cabinet minister at the moment, bar the prime minister or even the chancellor. That really, I suppose, was GB News's first big test of breaking a story as it was happening. How did you find the fast-paced nature of simply going out into the newsroom, straight onto Whitehall, broadcasting live with that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a challenge logistically for us because uh, we were actually in the middle of a replay because it was on a it was on a uh, Saturday, if I remember correctly, um, and we were in the middle of um, a replay of a show, so we had to interrupt that, start Neil Oliver's show on Saturday a little bit early, um, and cut to me. I happened to be in Westminster. We got a camera person down there really quickly, although um, she didn't bring a tripod. I think this is a lesson that we learned because we ended up standing there for about three hours, and her arms were were getting so tired by the end. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a lesson learned uh, there but actually no being able to talk to a subject like that really quickly with sort of live developments I mean as I was talking it was announced that Sajid Javid would become the new health secretary and being able to sort of you know give some background on that and and the dynamics within the Conservative Party while we're sort of there in the thick of it I think uh, was was a really good bit of television and um, uh, a really good sort of first test of responding to a large news event like that. Of course, before moving to GB News, you were a reporter with the Westminster gossip site, uh, Guido Fawkes. How have you personally found going from covering politics in a more salacious angle, let's say, to becoming the political correspondent for a mainstream broadcast news network? Well, one good training in one sense, because at Guido, we were all about really fast paced news. We wanted to uh, beat the BBC all the time in terms of getting stuff out there. And um, and I think we were quite successful in that. People used to have us sort of on news alerts on their, on their phones to get the stories really, really quickly. But you know what, during my time at Guido, I had the privilege to pop up on lots of national broadcasters sort of as, as more of a, a commentator as well as a journalist so I had a lot of experience in terms of sitting there and talking to a camera in a, in a studio whether it was on Sky, the BBC, Channel 4 and all of these different um, broadcasters and I think that that experience that Guido afforded me uh, has translated really well into GB News. Before you starting your journalistic career, I'd like to move back in time slightly and look at your time running the student wing of Vote Leave during the 2016 EU referendum campaign. How, how did you get involved in that campaign? Well, actually, it's, a, it's an interesting story because um, it was shortly after the 2015 general election and I was uh, uh, still in sixth form, actually. I was just, I was just finishing sixth form and I... Uh, I saw that Steve Baker and a bunch of MPs who I didn't know at the time but sort of followed had set up a group called Conservatives for Britain and I noticed that they'd set up this group, it had launched in the Sunday papers but it had no social media attached so I set up some of the social media accounts for it, totally unofficially and, and they gained quite a large following um, and so much so that I ended up being direct messaged by some of the people that were actually running the campaign saying, sorry, who is this? Is, is this us? Uh, who are 
are you? Can we uh, can we have a chat? So I ended up that night speaking on the phone to Steve Baker and uh, you know handing over the passwords to the accounts because they'd gone quite successfully. Um, and then uh, meeting up with a lot of the people that were running that campaign and through a series of meetings, um, ended up meeting some people in what was then the Business for Britain headquarters in the summer of 2015, um, ended up taking over a, a campaign that had been running for a few years then called Students for Britain, which became the, the official student wing of the, of the Leave campaign. And I uh, took that on, I think, in, in September 2015 and, and ran it right through up until the, uh, the referendum day. So at, at the time, I'd say you, you were, say, eight, 18, roughly. And uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Euroscepticism isn't exactly the most mainstream idea amongst young people and still isn't. I know I'm, I'm too. Back then it wasn't particularly mainstream amongst uh, any generation. Well, well exa so. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what, why did you support Brexit and what was the thing that really made you a, a Eurosceptic? I don't know. I, d I did a I did a um, internship out in the European Parliament actually, a very uh, short one, a couple of years beforehand. But that I, but by that, by that point, I was already um, pretty Eurosceptic. I remember watching videos of MEPs debating in the chamber, learning actually about the structures of the European Union. This thing that actually had such control over the lives and the regulations uh, that, that govern people in this country and yet that so few people uh, know much at all about. I found it very, very curious that you had sort of this organisation that had sort of crept up behind the backs of people that was uh, calling the shots in so many ways. I mean, how many people knew about the Spitzenkandidaten elections in 2014 and the fact that if you were voting for various um, members of the European Parliament, if you knew that you could vote for members of the European Parliament at all, you were actually voting for a president of the European Commission and the idea that there's this organisation that had taken on so much more power than it was ever originally conceived to have and was marching headfirst towards statehood. Um, and, and very few people were talking about it. And I suppose I sort of read a lot around that and, um, and it, it became something that I, I grew to care about quite a lot. And of course, back in those days, back in actually in 2015 even, it wasn't a really contentious issue. People didn't really, um, it didn't incite the passions amongst so many people that it does today. You could actually have a very normal conversation. I mean, I, I remember, when was it? It must have been 2014 or 2015 when Owen Jones felt comfortable writing Guardian articles saying we should leave the European Union. Wow. It was only actually during the referendum that the atmosphere became so toxic that it started to, to be perceived to be a marker of people's values rather than just an academic discussion over whether we should be part of this institution or not. So uh, back in those days, um, back before the referendum, proper before um, it, we, we knew when the date of the referendum would be even. I think it was a lot easier to have these discussions and people actually were a lot more open-minded to hearing the case. Yeah, and, and I'm sure e even today there are still many people who don't know about the Spitzenkandidaten process as well. But during those long Brexit battles in parliaments from 2018 to 19, with all those late night sittings and those knife ed edge votes and the Brexit day just being repeatedly postponed, it really was heartache for us Brexiteers at the time. But when all this was going on, particularly as you were, as you say, in the thick of it in Westminster at the time, speaking to the people in power and making these decisions, 
did you ever think your work on the campaign and your advocacy for leaving the EU all the way since 2015, as you say, did you ever feel that all that work might have been in vain and potentially Brexit wouldn't happen? You know what, I remember really, really clearly when I thought, I think we've lost it all. I think this is all gone. And it's when Theresa May decided to stop negotiating with her backbenchers and start negotiating with Jeremy Corbyn, saying that actually we're going to put a customs union um, on the table here. And, and it's, you know, if there's one aspect of the European Union that I was most against, that most inspired me to, you know, really get involved, it was getting rid of the wretched customs union and, and stopping Brussels setting our external tariffs and, and letting us take control of our own trade policy. That's the thing that actually most excited me throughout the course of the campaign. And, and it was the thing that um, this government that was led by someone who voted Remain, that uh, it seemed to think that Brexit was only about one issue, not anything to do with the European Union, but about how uh, many migrants were let into the country, which is a, sort of a, of a second order um, issue to me. To me, leaving the European Union is about leaving the institutions of the European Union, not necessarily what you do with the powers when you get them back. It's the, the, the means of having the powers in the first place. Anyway, the, the number 10 of that time didn't seem to think that way at all and, and, and began to negotiate with the opposition um, in, in terms of what, what a Brexit deal should look like. The negotiation became how much should we give away rather than how much should we take. And I remember walking across Westminster Bridge the night that was announced, just looking at my phone, sort of actually messaging a couple of people I knew at the time in number 10, think, just saying, well, it's hopeless, it's lost. It's, I, was, I was despairing really, really despairing. I mean, thankfully then um, it was delayed so much that the European elections came along and that I think is what changed the mind of a lot of Conservative MPs. The fact that there was another popular mandate, that you could see the strength of feeling, the idea that an upstart party that didn't exist a month before the elections had suddenly won those elections and that Brexit, uh, you, you, you do need the occasional um, democratic reminder for people that get ever so comfortable on the benches of the House yeah. of Commons. They sort of forget the people that elected them. And I think those European elections really reminded uh, people in the House of Commons that actually if they went back on what the referendum result demanded, uh, they wouldn't be sitting on those green benches for very long. So now that we've obviously we've had the referendum, we've had all those battles, those long late night sittings, we've had a, a change of prime minister as a result of this and a fresh deal and even a fresh trade deal as well as a result of this. Is the Brexit we got the Brexit you were hoping for when you were working on the campaign? I, I think broadly, yes. I'm delighted that we've got Liz Truss pinging around just about every continent of the world signing trade deals. I'm delighted that we're able to um, look to, I mean, obviously we, we uh, took, took on uh, EU law into our domestic uh, statute books, but we can now go through that bit by bit and, and chuck bits out. Am I totally happy with the way the Irish protocol works? No. Would I like some more control over uh, fishing? Yes. But ultimately, we get these yearly negotiation quotas for that. And there's the option to invoke Article uh, 16 of the protocol. So broadly, I think I'm fairly happy with how it's gone. I mean, I, looking back to, I don't know, 2013, I'd have been delighted to leave the European Union and join EFTA or the EEA. And that would have a far low, lower level of, of sovereignty than we enjoy today. So I mean, just comparing to where we are, how 
how far we've come and how much we won. I think sometimes we don't sort of look at how significant that was and, and, and how, how clear that victory became. Mm, definitely. And uh, with this victory, of course, during the 2016 EU referendum, you, you worked closely with everyone's favourite political strategist, Dominic Cummings. What was he like to work with? Do you know what? I, I think I sat in about two meetings with him. Once he made me a cup of tea, um, but I, I wouldn't say that I knew him very well. I could sort of see him at the edge of the room. He had sort of in the in the main campaign room of, of, of Vote Leave HQ, there were sort of all these banks of desks and then a, an office in the corner where Dom Cummings and Matthew Elliott would sort of sit and discuss and you could sort of see them sketching on whiteboards and, and having important phone calls and, and all those sort of things. But um, it wasn't really my place um, to sort of, you know, step in there and, and, yeah. and see exactly what was going on. I remember seeing him pacing and pacing on the night of that vote because I was sort of sitting in, in the back there sheepishly. I was up in Durham where I was at university during the day of the vote I got the last train down to London getting in actually after the polls had closed probably getting into um, vote leave HQ around midnight um, and sort of seeing everyone sort of pacing but sort of excited looking at the data sort of saying actually this is going a little bit better than we thought sort of seeing each stage sort of where we needed to be and where the results actually were and, and getting increasingly excited until actually the data guys called it about an hour before the BBC did in the Vote Leave HQ and we sort of passed around the bottles of, I, I think it was Prosecco. Um, and um, and everyone was like, no, don't take any pictures of this. Oh my God, if we're wrong <laughs> and it gets out that we've been, you know, uh, quaffing bubbly at, at a result that hasn't. But yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was just sort of a remarkable, remarkable moment. And then of course he stood up on that uh, desk in that famous footage, that footage that I, uh, I actually gave to the BBC, um, which they now play whenever, whenever they talk about Dominic Cummings. There's sort of my little iPhone footage of him punching yeah. that ceiling tile. Um, but no, that was uh, just a, a, a magical, magical campaign, a magical moment. And speaking of the BBC, Mr Cummings did a big interview with uh, the, their political editor, Laura Koonsberg, this week. And there have been questions around his integrity and truthfulness with some of the remarks he came out with, with in this interview. So... Having worked with him briefly and got to know his working styles during the campaign, what what did you make of the interview? Do you think he was telling the whole truth in that? I think broadly he was. He didn't pull any punches. He he was pretty direct. But I think that sometimes you can overinterpret some of this stuff yeah. that he said. Like the, the idea, I mean, I, I think it's fairly obviously true that Boris Johnson said it's ludicrous that I should become prime minister. Mm. But I mean, you, you don't take that totally literally. Like the, the man jokes quite a lot. And and he said that it was also ludicrous that, that Dave or George, i.e. Mm. Uh, David Cameron or George Osborne should be prime minister. In fact, actually, mm. if you're if, if you subscribe to the way that Boris Johnson thinks, it's probably ridiculous that anyone should be prime minister and that you should have sort of uh, this this uh, amount of control and power vested in any one individual. Just to move, move away from the Brexit and the EU for, for a moment, so something you and I both have in common is the fact that we've both been interns at the Institute of Economic Affairs, a free market based, uh, free, free market think tank based around the corner from Parliament for those listeners who don't know about it. How did your time at the IEA influence your views and prepare you for life in Westminster? Well, I um, got that internship actually after 
skipping skipping the afternoon of school with a couple of friends back in 2014, I think it was, um, to go down to this economics lecture that I heard about. Uh, it's called the Hayek Memorial Lecture, and I think it happens every year and, and um, we went along and we sat there and then there were all these sort of uh, gift bags afterwards and we and as we were leaving me and a couple of uh, school friends of mine we sort of saw there was a drinks reception afterwards and it's like well yeah we're 16 and we can sort of sneak into this drinks reception and get free alcohol i love this this is probably a terrible advert of the iea actually because um, <laughs> no it was entirely yeah, our fault yeah. so we were deceiving them um but no so we got talking to some people there and actually one of the people we got talking to was the um outreach officer for the IEA who, who sort of, I, I don't know, passed us his email address and said, well, you should definitely apply for the internship this summer. And that we did and, uh, and went along. Amazing. And, you know, I, I too did this summer internship. It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, if there are any listeners who are interested in free market economics and classical liberal thinking, you should definitely have a look at the opportunities that they have, particularly for young people. They have a brilliant uh, network and uh, a wide range of opportunities for young people. So with, with that, you, you do, uh, I think it's fair to say, come from the more classical liberal tr tradition. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, you've been quite vocal about encouraging as many people as possible, particularly young people, to get the COVID-19 vaccine. But how comfortable are you with the Prime Minister's announcement this week that people must be fully vaccinated to enter certain venues and places such as nightclubs? Do you think this is the right decision? Yeah, it's something that I've been wrestling with, actually. I think that broadly at a time of war, there are no libertarians. I think that you can make a classical liberal argument in favour of the uh, lockdowns that we initially went into, the sort of um, the harm principle argument where uh, the state has an obligation to protect the, the um, liberty of people not to kill other people, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that there's, a, there's an argument there, but when it comes into what, what I get really worried about is when we're talking about things that may stretch beyond the pandemic proper, when we start talking about, about creating societal infrastructure that will still be with us after the pandemic. I'm relatively relaxed about government intervention in this defined um, pandemic period. The question for me is, are there endpoints and are we setting up systems and infrastructure that might sustain beyond the pandemic? That's what I am genuinely really concerned with. And so I'm, uh, when it comes to vaccine passports or whatever we want to call them, if they do come about, I would want to see a very clear sunset clause. Um, but also I would want it to be, you know, a, a, a COVID specific only thing because I don't want yeah. them to build this sort of infrastructure that so much stuff that the government does that is designed to be temporary they think actually I rather like this and maybe we should continue to have this state-issued uh, digital document keeping track of our citizens I, I don't think that there's any justification for that to continue beyond a pandemic so on on those grounds I think that it's it's harder to justify uh, a, a covid passport but I'm, I'm relatively open-minded about intervention during the defined mm. pandemic period yeah absolutely and of course it was the economist milton friedman who said there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government measure so i, I do agree we'll, we'll have to see what those proposals are when they come out and uh, of course there does need to be some sort of sunset clause around this mm. But given that there's been so much backlash ar around this announcement, particularly on the Conservative backbenches, 
what do you think are the chances that the prime minister will U-turn on this or even, dare I say, it's face a commons defeat? I, th I think the prime minister would really quite like not to ever have to bring the legislation forward in the first place. I think the ideal situation that the prime minister foresees, and I think he hinted to this uh, in the 1922 committee meeting this week, where he's trying to assuage the concerns of many of his backbenchers. I think his ideal situation would be to say um, that we're introducing these passports, then for so many young people to be vaccinated, to be able to make an announcement come mid-September saying, you know what, we really were going to introduce these vaccine passports, but because the levels of vaccination among 18 to 30 year olds are now at you know, 90% or whatever it is, um, we feel like we no longer need to because everyone's vaccinated anyway and it would be no point checking on the door. I think that's the announcement that he would like to make. Um, it'll be an interesting question to see whether the rates of vaccination tick up because, I mean, if we're being honest, Boris Johnson doesn't want to introduce vaccine passports. He's someone that's been on the very liberal end of things in the, in, in the past and reading many of his Spectator and Telegraph columns over the years against the introduction of ID cards, for example, you can see how vociferously he'd argue against this were he not in government. Um, I think that ultimately this is just a tool to try and get people vaccinated and get more people vaccinated, particularly young people. And if that if the comms around this works and enough young people got vaccinated, as we saw in Israel, they sort of stopped asking for what they called their green card system, a vaccine passport, just because everyone was vaccinated, really. And, and there was no point asking on the door because everyone had one. Do you think the pandemic has made Boris more of an authoritarian, more of a, a state intervention kind of prime minister compared to the more libertarian minded Boris that he used to be? I think Boris the columnist is libertarian minded. Boris the politician is not. One of the first things that Boris did as London mayor was ban drinking on the tube. Now, I can imagine that if, if he were a Telegraph columnist or a, or a spectator editor and it was a Labour mayor that banned drinking on the tube or across TfL, the amount of rage against the sort of new Puritanism that that would represent that would come through his writing would, would no doubt uh, be intense. So I, I don't actually buy this argument that Boris has ever been particularly uh, strongly libertarian when he's been in positions of government, but he certainly has when he's been on the outside. And I think that that's a trap that many, many politicians fall into. You don't want anyone else to have any power whatsoever. But when it's you with the power, you're slightly more relaxed about it. My final question around the, the idea of the vaccine passports here. And have, have you heard anything speaking to various MPs and ministers about potential caveats to or exemptions for the vaccine passports, particularly for those who cannot receive the jab for medical reasons? Because that's a concern many have had. And there has been some sentiment amongst the, the general public that there hasn't been enough focus throughout the whole pandemic on those who cannot receive certain treatments or vaccinations for medical reasons. I asked about the medical uh, exemption uh, on Monday. I asked the, no, on Tuesday, I asked the Prime Minister's spokesman about this, actually. And, and of course, when the government mandated vaccinations in care home settings, they set out a list of exemptions for medical reasons um, where, uh, where this, this mandate wouldn't apply. And the Prime Minister's spokesman told me that when the vaccine passport um, legislation was brought forward, because of course it would uh, require primary legislation, there would also be a list of exemptions.
Okay, well, well, that's reassuring to hear. And of course, we are expecting to hear more information around this announcement over the next few days. So my, my final question is that now that Brexit has happened, the, the pandemic, based on current data, seems to be heading into its final stages. What do you see as the next big challenge that the UK faces? Well, I think we're not out of the woods of the pandemic yet, with uh, potentially 100,000 cases a day, maybe 1,000 hospitalizations a day, maybe a few hundred deaths a day. I think a lot of people haven't um, quite registered what the, what the Prime Minister has been saying about the fact that we will have an exit wave, whatever we do, there will be um, a sort of a, a spike in, or, or if not a spike, a sort of hump in, in hospitalizations and deaths as we leave this pandemic, as we shift from pandemic to endemic disease in this country. Um, so I think that there's still a way to go on that, but ultimately the prime minister has this sort of nebulous phrase that he wants the remainder of his time as prime minister to be about leveling up and a, a far cry from his brilliant, brilliant Greenwich speech that he gave in February 2020 that set out sort of the, the idea of Britain being a global champion of open markets and free trade. Um, the levelling spe up speech that Boris Johnson gave just a week or so ago seemed to have none of that ideological fervour and very little in terms of substance. Yeah. So I think if the Prime Minister really wants to have a driving mission for his, he's, he's been Prime Minister actually for two years yeah. this Sun, this Saturday, this Saturday will be the 24th of July, uh, and he became uh, Prime Minister on the 24th of July 2019. So we're two years in, uh, potentially two years out from an election. The second half of his premiership really needs to be defined. He's got Brexit, he dealt with the vaccines well, but actually unless he defines exactly the principles by which he will level up the country and how that will uh, happen, what demons he'll have to slay, um, I'm afraid that that the next two years of his premiership could become quite nebulous and forgettable. Okay, Tom Harwood, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.